0: Think on your feet for our fast and curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events.
1: I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Recap. We made it to the end of the week. Time to take a step back from the headlines and dig a little deeper on the Weekly News Recap. There are a lot of big stories to discuss. The ComEd trial is underway.
0: Thomas O'Neill was ComEd's top attorney. He told jurors that some people, including ComEd's own lobbyist, defendant Michael McClain, would frequently ask him to find work for people tied to former House Speaker Michael Madigan.
1: Abortion opponents headed to Springfield. Pro-life supporters from all across the state descended on the state capitol yesterday for Illinois March for Life. And mayoral candidates Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis faced off.
0: Yeah, I'm not going to defund the police. I made that very clear. What I'm going to do is make sure that we implement a smart plan. So this whole idea that somehow we're going to promote detectives and that's going to solve the problem, it's going to do absolutely nothing.
1: As always, we have top local journalists with us to give us the lowdown on those stories and more. Chicago Tribune's Cook County and Chicago government reporter A.D. Quig, Paris Schutz, WTTW correspondent and co-anchor of Chicago Tonight. And we're also joined by John Seidel, federal court reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times. Political hiring continued to be the focus in the ComEd trial this week, and there was more dramatic testimony. John, I know you've been attending the trial, so how about we start with Madigan's longtime political point man, Will Cusano, who took the stand yesterday.
0: Right, Will um, was uh, He came in. Uh, I don't think uh, too many people were expecting him to get on the witness stand yesterday, but he came in. Uh, interestingly enough, it uh, turns out he had... Like some other defendant or some other witnesses i 'm sorry had uh, non target letters he had actually acquired through his lawyers an immunity letter, uh, which made his uh, testimony all that more intriguing. Mm. Um, he was also uh, i understand from my uh, colleagues in springfield. Uh, tended to be just as reclusive as the the former speaker. A lot of them had not really heard much from him about, but he was a very significant presence down in Springfield. Yeah, um, and he did some uh, uh, helpful things for for the prosecution. Um, one thing that he did was he continued to put defendant Michael McLean, who was a longtime emissary of Michael Madigan's. Uh, Right in the middle of decision-making down in Springfield, uh, one of the first recordings that was played was from a a December 2018 conversation uh, when Madigan was talking about, with some of his uh, close confidants uh, um, and staff members, about leadership in the upcoming General Assembly. Um, Michael McLean, who was not a member of the Speaker's staff... Uh, was right there in the middle of the conversation and, in fact, was the one person who spoke up and offered advice to Madigan about what to do and, and how to how to strategize in the General Assembly. Um, we also heard that um, in the lead up to passage of one of the key bills at issue in this case, the Future Energy Jobs Act in 2016, uh, Michael Mc, Michael McLean was being given inside information uh, from Cousineau about lawmakers who were expected to not be present in Springfield when it came time to to vote on that bill. Mm-hmm. And we also learned that that Madigan himself sent uh, Cousineau out to get that bill passed after Cousineau realized it didn't have the votes to pass in 2016 uh, He went out there at Madigan's Direction to get it done.
1: Lots learned in that testimony, for sure. I want to turn now to ComEd's former general counsel, though, Thomas O'Neill. He testified for 11 hours over two days. Sounds right. What were the main takeaways there?
0: Uh, Tom Tom O'Neill talked about a lot of things. He spent a lot of time talking about these two bills. There was FISA and also the... um, Energy Infrastructure Modernization Act. These these two very technical sounding bills uh, are the ones that, um, frankly, we've heard through Thomas O'Neill and others took ComEd from the brink of bankruptcy in the in the early 2000s to record profits in in 2022. And and he and others have actually insisted that this was actually very good policy for Illinois because it 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 took uh, an aging ComEd. Um, with you know its its grid and its power system was was starting to fail. Yeah, and helped uh, help the utility invest and in, in do things now and take and prevent mass power outages that they couldn't before. Uh, so he talked at length about the the passage of those bills and the massive lobbying effort that was actually involved in getting those bills passed. Mm. Um, but then we also heard about a. Uh, contract for a politically connected law firm, uh, the law firm of Reyes Curson, where Victor Reyes uh, is a political operator in the city. He's a partner. And, um, you know, he that Victor Reyes and his law firm first came on Tom O'Neill's radar around June of 2011. And Tom O'Neill said he was planning to hire the law firm, um, but he was in the midst of trying to get this EMA bill passed in 2011. He had other priorities, other things on his plate. He was going to get to it. In comes Michael McLean and co-defendant John Hooker, who was a lobbyist for ComEd, who suddenly got on Tom O'Neill's case and said, "You got to get this done."
1: So defense lawyers were, were poking holes in that
0: testimony. Well, defense lawyers w- were circled back and pointed out that this. I think their point is that this law firm contract um, is one contract in in the midst of a massive effort to get these bills. There were lots of lobbyists in, um, dispatched to to try and get these bills passed. Mm-hmm. Um, So I think their point is that one contract is not a bribery scheme, mate. You know, and I I would point out real quick that he did, Tom O'Neill did make the decision to go ahead and hire Reyes Curson in 2011. It was again in 2016 that there was renewed pressure. There was an unusual part of this contract which guaranteed Reyes Curson 850 billable hours a year. Um, He and his staff, Tom O'Neill and his staff, did not feel like they had the the work. (laughs) <laughs> to meet that That's guarantee, a lot of hours. So later on, they tried to reduce the the number of hours in that contract, and again there was pushback not only from McLean but from Anne Pramageur. Uh McLean went over O'Neill's head to Anne Promajour. And they sent this email in which he said this was going to provoke a reaction from our friend, which was his code for Mike Madigan. Oh, my God. Is this a drill we must go through? The code words
2: in this whole thing The recordings are unbelievable. There's there's such an insight into how this all works. I was going to ask you, because
1: given that the former speaker was not known for making himself available to the press, right, do you think that these recordings, they kind of give us this rare glimpse into how he
2: operated? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's the best glimpse I think we've ever had into how he operated. And I love how these lobbyists that used to work— You know, for Illinois Democrats, for Madigan, uh, Cousineau and McLean, they keep saying, we know who our real client is. They're, They're ostensibly lobbying on behalf of ComEd or independent interests. We know who our real client is. That's Mike Madigan. And the other thing that came out this week was on just one of those bills, I think it was the Future Energy Jobs Act, ComEd made $2 billion as a or $1.8 billion as a result of that bill. So consider what they paid in a Mm -hmm. fine to plead guilty to this alleged bribery scheme, $200 million. It's like a 10% down payment on making all these profits. Sounds like a pretty good deal (laughs) for ComEd. I mean, the other thing I think about, though, like, John, everything you described here is it's like so weedy and so complex. Mm -hmm. And this is going to go on for like two more months. And I just wonder how how jurors are going to digest all this. And it just harkens back to the initial Rod Blagojevich federal trial where, you know, it just takes one one yeah. juror to be hung. And, and then the feds realized they had to streamline the case hugely to make it really, really simple. I don't know if that's Going to be the case here, but it seems like it's like so complex. You could, I also you could wonder see how John is like, doing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just
1: yeah. like, I'm like, how is your head not spinning? We're just in, sitting in that courtroom every day. <laughs>
0: there's a lot to there's a lot to Jeez. sort through, but uh, I appreciate that. But no, uh, Paris is right. I mean, what matters is what jurors are thinking. And and look, there have been times when the testimony seems to have dragged on, but you know, I, I will say there was one particular moment like that this week. Um, where I think we were all kind of suffering. I looked over at the jury and they seemed like they were taking it in. And there was there's one in particular who, deep into this, was taking close notes. Oh wow! Okay, um,
3: looking like so a reporter.
0: So that. a yeah. <laughs> Former journalist. Yeah. So so they're 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 still with us for now. I think. Yeah.
1: yeah. The, Ad, the whole trial, it's it's just quite the lesson in machine politics, mm-hmm. is it not?
3: It is, and like John has said before, this is gonna be a distinction between is this normal politics, is this day to day as the defense has claimed, or is this direct quid pro quo? And it's gonna be up to the prosecutors to explain how this led to that and the path was through Madigan and this money was for this. Whether they managed to do that I, I don't know. I like just reading it, knowing knowing what I do know, mm-hmm. which is a limited amount. About like Comet and Madigan, I never covered Springfield, but trying to keep up with this day to day in the paper is like a complete head spinner. So, uh, I I need don't... a whiteboard. I need you a, need a whiteboard, whiteboard and all the lines. Need all the red or strings. just do like me get you a John Seidel. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> this is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. You're tuned in to our weekly news recap where we bring context and analysis to the biggest local and state stories of the week. Our panel today includes WTTW Channel 11's Paris Shuts, A.D. Quigg from the Chicago Tribune, and John Seidel from the Chicago Sun-Times. So, as the ComEd trial was going on at the federal courthouse just a few blocks away at city council, they were also discussing the utility company Philson in Paris.
2: Well, this is a franchise agreement, so it gives ComEd—it's been up for a couple of years, and it, this is the agreement that gives ComEd the exclusive right to provide power to all of, of Chicago, basically— and this was uh, this was basically Mayor Lightfoot's last big defeat here, or maybe one of her biggest defeats of her term. She sort of negotiated this agreement with COMED, a new franchise agreement. And older people were like, "Wait a second, uh, you know what? What incentive do we have to quickly pass this? Mm-hmm. She's a lame duck. Uh, let's let's toss aside. Given all the scrutiny on COMED and all the anger at COMED, mm-hmm. you know maybe this is not the best deal the city could get, and, and really." I mean, in this deal, I didn't see a whole lot in the way of like rate relief or rate reduction or anything like that. I saw money for like climate change programs. Mm. So all the people are like, well, come Ed again. I'll go back to what we learned in this trial. They made a 1.8 billion dollars because of this, because of the bill that passed in Springfield. They're 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 drowning in money ostensibly. We can't negotiate something that like. Gives relief, especially to low-income ratepayers? Well,
3: and there was a big debate about whether the city should municipalize mm-hmm. um, their electric. So basically, for the city to take over the the grid here, mm-hmm. um, and that got basically cast aside by a Lightfoot administration, who said it was unworkable. But I wonder if that will be more on the table, especially if we have a lot more progressive aldermen coming in, yeah. in this next term.
2: That's that's a great point. So,
3: Paris, you, you think
1: this comment trial is is impacting the council's willingness to? approve this exclusive contract? I, d- I, extension. Don't,
2: I don't know if the trial is. I do think that Mayor Lightfoot's lame duck status mm-hmm. is. They, okay. they. I mean, she can't whip up votes for this because why, why would they go along with that? And um, as AD said, I think I think, yes, if if these elections, these runoffs are going to be so interesting, if it's more of a democratic socialist uh, wave, then this whole talk of Municipalizing, making it public, mm-hmm. socializing, so to speak, uh, the power grid. But but now ComEd owns all the infrastructure, mm. so that's why it's it would be incredibly hard to do that. Yes,
1: AD, do you think that Lightfoot's inability to get this deal passed is that a sign that her enemies at, at City Council they're they're just feeling more empowered now?
3: I don't think it's uh, necessarily retribution against the mayor, but I think it's protectionist for their own interests in the next term, and in some cases, protecting who they think is going to win for mayor and giving them as many kind of deliverables and. Interesting things on the table that they could really take in their own direction, right. as possible, because that
2: next term is right around the corner. Have you any, anything? I, and I haven't. I mean, there's been eight trillion debates. I haven't followed all of them, but have any of the candidates said what they want to do with the franchise agreement?
1: Not that I can recall at the top I will of certainly my head. ask when we talk to them you, next yes, Thursday. Next, yes. There you go. That's how you do WBEZ it. You do it. Uh, so more news out of City Hall this week. Activists and lawyers they held a press conference asking the city to stop fighting wrongful convictions tainted by police misconduct. Can you fill us in on that, John?
0: Yeah, a little bit. I, I think the focus of this uh, press conference was a uh, um, Chicago police detective named Re- Reynaldo Guevara, who was, a, uh, I think, a very successful and well-known detective back in the 80s and 90s, who uh, uh, I think was kind of known as a, a, a bit of a closer when it came to um, um, you know, various criminal case, high-profile cases um but he's kind of become the the centerpiece of one of sh- chicago's many police scandals and and really kind of uh, ranks very high up there with all of them. I mean, he has been accused of um, closing all these cases because he was torturing and coercing um, young men into confessions and, and sending them um, to prison for crimes that they didn't commit and taking away decades of their lives. Mm. And, you know, I know that I have multiple times and I think other reporters have gone to a courtroom to watch Reynaldo Guevara take the, the Fifth Amendment. Um, wow. You know, and he's been doing this for years. He's he's not he's never been charged with a crime, uh, but he is uh, repeatedly, um, you know, citing his his right against self-incrimination. And
1: Eleven new lawsuits were filed by by men who say that they were framed by him and, right. and spent decades in jail.
0: Right. So so this has been going on for quite a long time and it's it's not going away. I mean, there, there are there are new claims, ongoing claims. And I think the point of this press conference was um again, with the thought that there's going to be a new administration coming in, uh, stop fighting these lawsuits and racking up unnecessary legal bills— and compensate um, the people who were uh, wronged by Reynaldo Guevara. I mean, I think there are definitely policy questions within that. I mean, the, the judicial process, part of the uh, the litigation is is to explore these claims by these individuals. I mean, you'd have to find a way to do it so that you're making sure the money gets to the right people. Um, but but look, I mean, the city has paid, uh, according to my colleagues reporting, $76 million so far in settlements as a result of Reynaldo Guevara, and close to 40 people have uh, been exonerated in cases. Wow. Uh, I believe he is not not even considered to be a credible uh, witness on the stand any longer um, by, by of even an appellate court. So um, a, this is a ongoing issue that, that city hall probably should deal with. Cause it's going to cost uh, the city quite a bit of money one way or another.
1: Early voting kicked off on Monday for the city's runoff election and the two mayoral candidates met up on Wednesday night for their third runoff debate. AD, did we learn anything new?
3: Mm, no, <laughs> I
1: don't well, think. I, what were your highlights?
3: I mean, um, it's a, it's a a narrowing of a lot of the things that we've heard repeatedly. So Brandon Johnson wants to make the case that Paul Vallis is a secret Republican, um, that he, he doesn't support working people, um, highlighting the endorsement of the FOP. Um, Paul Vallis, meanwhile, has wanted to talk about the way that Brandon Johnson wants to raise taxes, how he believes the Chicago Teachers Union is responsible for lengthy uh, remote learning, which led to learning loss and a loss of uh, enrollment at CPS. It's kind of like a we've been hearing this stuff pretty much nonstop, but it's like more narrowed, more tailored, and in some cases sharper. But Paris had something. Well, Paris I was just going to say, we
2: learned, although I guess this was comment that was out there before, but Vallis called Pritzker a dictator for the – The shutdown and one of the many times that Vallis co-hosted on this very conservative radio network and and radio show, kind of echoing like a lot of conservative talking points about covid and shutdowns and crime. And, and, you know, if you look at the polls narrowing, I just wonder if that attack from Brandon Johnson kind of trying to paint him as Republican, bringing up all these comments might be landing.
3: Yeah, he was basically uh, on the show. He was co-hosting with Amy Jacobson, um, basically said the mayor and the governor's use of executive orders uh, rather than approving uh, remote learning and other like COVID mitigations legislatively was dictatorial. Um, And this is the first time we've kind of heard Governor Pritzker respond to these. HuffPost um, got a quote from him basically saying, like, I hope um, Paul Vallis listens to the experts and not conservative radio hosts when he has to make big decisions like this. (laughs) The governor has not endorsed, but that's like the closest we've got to
2: Interesting. The,
3: the governor's thoughts on uh, these candidates. And
2: then don't forget, Darren Bailey, the governor's opponent, puts out a video endorsement of, of Vallis saying that we need Vallis. Uh, what was the phrase he used? Like Brandon Johnson, it would be "It would, it would would be dark times for Chicago or something like that. Some kind of very strange phrase. And then they quickly took that. Uh, I'm sure the Vallis campaign was pulling their hair out. It's like, ah, get that video <laughs> down, get that video down. And then they took then, uh, it. Darren disappeared. Bailey, it disappeared. It right, disappeared somehow. The whole
3: campaign... Vallis has had to say, I'm a lifelong Democrat, I'm a lifelong Democrat, in part because he, he flirted with a potential Republican run for the cook County board, um, which he ultimately never did. But he basically said, I only thought about that because the Strogers had such a strong hold on Democratic politics that I never had a <laughs> chance as a Republican. But these associations with yeah. and support from... Um Republicans uh, far right folks, trump donors is is obviously weighing on him and something Brandon Johnson wants to highlight.
1: I want to dig more into some of these mayoral endorsements folks uh, let's talk about the newest former Chicago public school CEO and Secretary of Education, Arnie Duncan. So who is he
3: going with? He is going with Paul Vallis, but did say if Brandon Johnson wins, I'll support him hundred percent. and it was not about education, this endorsement. it was about Paul Vallis's relationship. With the FOP being, mm-hmm. uh, being a strength. So Arnie Duncan has been working with Chicago Cred, which is a violence prevention organization, for several years. And his argument in a Tribune op-ed this morning was basically that Paul Vallis has a good relationship with the FOP that might get them on board with the kinds of reforms that the Chicago Police Department needs to gain trust in communities.
2: I should, I should mention, because I mentioned Darren Bailey put out that Pat Quinn— Uh, You know, former Democratic uh, governor did endorse Paul Vallis. Vallis was was his former running mate. Uh, They didn't uh, they lost to Bruce Rauner. And, you know, Vallis has put together a a list of older people, Chicago, across, you know, racial lines that that have endorsed his campaign. So it's I mean, it's a rainbow endorsement here. uh, But but what stands out is all those endorsements from the far right, too.
1: But what also stands out to me is this continuation of uh, the city's black leaders just being so split mm-hmm. in their endorsements. Mm-hmm. Give us the latest on that.
3: So the big one this week was uh, Bobby Rush endorsing Paul Vallis. Um, and the tribe did a really interesting article breaking down how basically what I call establishment Democrats have kind of stuck with Paul Vallis. So older, um, older black elected officials that kind of came to power in the daily era um, seem to be backing Vallis, which critics or uh, progressive activists say is a sign that Ballas would be a continuation of the status quo. He's like an old school Democrat, uh, not progressive, won't take us in the direction that we need to go in. Um, when these endorsers make their endorsements, they're not saying, I'm a daily person, and that's why I'm sticking right. with they're Paul Right, they're not Ballas. identifying. Yeah. No, no, no. There's, they're saying Paul has the experience. He's been doing this for decades. Um, he knows the right people. He's collaborative. Um, and most importantly, he's going to address public safety, which is what a lot of our constituents care about. Mm-hmm. They want to be safe, and Paul can deliver on
1: And that. we saw Jesse Jackson endorse Brandon Johnson.
3: That's right. right. Um, and we're going to see uh, Bernie Sanders next week rolling through town. He had a lot more uh, national endorsements this week. Ayanna Pressley, who was raised in Chicago, also endorsed him this week. Um, the, the progressive ones for Brandon Johnson also continue. But, yes, you're right. There's been a, a big divide between establishment uh, black Democrats and more progressives, mm-hmm. and that's going to be kind of key to win over. Um, the other question is: uh, Paul Vallis placed second in a lot of majority Latino awards in the first, uh, the first round. But Chuy Garcia has since endorsed Brandon Johnson. So will all those people yeah. jump on think, team? I Brandon? mean,
2: and think of think of the amazingness of that comment that uh, that Bobby Rush is establishment, former Black Panther, yeah. is endorsing the guy endorsed by the FOP. Are you like, surprised? Can... By well, that? He's, well,
3: he's had such a weird mayoral endorsement.
2: History, yeah, I think he today. might have endorsed Bill Daley 4 years ago. He
3: endorsed Tony Preckwinkle and s- oh. in the second round at least, I don't remember what he did in the first round, but
2: I thought it was Bill Daley for I could be wrong At on
3: the it. time he said like uh Lightfoot is the FOP candidate and she's going to have the blood on her hands of the next shot, And now he's endorsing the, the FOP, FOP candidate. Endorsed but, candidate. But you know, mm-hmm. it really
2: it really goes to the fact that, you know, Chicago's racial demographics, it's not a monolith in each of these groups and as AD said it's I've talked to like like police officers and politicians about this like Older uh, black and Latino folks tend to be more pro-law enforcement, like the notion of defund the police being something that that like most Latino residents want or African-American. It, that's completely wrong. Yeah. It's like younger
3: mm-hmm. uh,
2: members of these communities tend to be more pro- progressive. Older members tend to like the law and order pitch. Mm-hmm.
3: And I think that's part of why Brandon Johnson has backed off of the defund um, so hard in the past couple of weeks. Yeah. John, how much
2: weight do you
0: think these endorsements carry? Um, well, I, I mean, I keep getting uh, emails uh, every day about who's the latest to endorse. <laughs> I think they matter that we, we hear about them all the time. Yeah. Um, so, so, no, I think they carry a certain amount of weight and send a certain message. But I, like, like you, have been fascinated by the, 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 the racial split mm-hmm. uh, uh, that we've been talking about. I mean, um, A.D. and Paris have given us some, some great insights there. But, no, I think, they, I think they matter. That's why we hear about them.
1: We're also seeing, A.D., that Vallis is raising a heck of a lot more money than Johnson.
3: Yes, um, I. This is like the one thing I was watching out for after the first round, after Paul Vallis won, because he was pulling in quite a few um, business donations in mm-hmm. the first round, and that has only amped up. Insane. He's raised eleven point one million. Yeah, we're not at Rahm Emanuel twenty four million dollars <laughs> levels yet, but we but, are. But
1: Johnson's at seven point one million.
3: Right, and a lot compare. of a lot of those um, are major labor organizations. Obviously, the, the CTU, the Illinois Federation of Teachers, the American Federation of Teachers, all. Throwing in big. Well, consider the
2: CTU giving another $1.5 million to Vallis and they... Johnson, to Johnson. I'm sorry. To, oh, God. Yeah, I'm sorry. Johnson. <laughs> it's early. It's early. <laughs> giving another $1.5 million to Johnson and they they their House of Delegates kind of voted on behalf of all their members to divert $8 a month uh, in union dues for all their members over to the campaign. And there's a lot of CT members scratching their heads. I mean, I think they probably support Brandon Johnson, but they're like, uh, do we really want to be given all our money uh, over into political campaigns like Mm -hmm. this. Especially
3: when they have the elected school board elections coming up soon.
1: 21
2: races then at some point that they're going to have to be a part of. Right. Yeah.
1: All right, John, let's turn away from the mayoral race, shall we? <laughs> All right. Senators Tammy Duckworth and Dick Durbin, they've submitted two names to replace the U.S. Attorney for Northern Illinois, John Lausch. So who are they and, and how does the search or selection process, rather, how does that work?
0: Sure. So um, the, the two names that have been sent to, to President Biden are uh, uh, April Perry and Sergio Acosta, both former uh, federal prosecutors who have um, gone in into uh, private practice. Um, April Perry, um, she did some work for the U.S. Attorney's Office and then moved on and actually worked for Kim Fox's office and resigned in, amid— the whole Jussie Smollett mess. I I believe she was the ethics Ah, officer at the time and wrote a a letter, a memo about uh, Kim Fox's recusal from the case uh, and stepped away. And I don't believe she commented on her, her reasons from stepping away. Sergio Acosta, another former federal prosecutor uh, prosecutor. We talked about uh, police scandals. He was involved in the prosecution of John Burge uh, back in the day and uh, is also in um, private practice. Now Uh, the way it works is the, the, you know, the president will take these two names and, and presumably choose one to nominate. The mm-hmm. Senate confirms and we have a new U.S. attorney. What's interesting, if I real quick, is that, you know, one thing that we heard about this search as soon as the former U.S. attorney, John Lausch, left was just about bringing some diversity into the office. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been dominated by white males. And now we see uh, a, a woman and uh, a Hispanic uh, male nominated for these positions. So it, it appears as long as it's one of these two, it'll be a historic pick
1: remind us what exactly the US the, the local US attorney is tasked with
0: Sure. So the local US attorney is the federal government's primary lawyer um, here in the Northern District of the, Illinois the, top, the top, prosecutor top, top prosecutor for the feds locally Top prosecutor for the feds locally, but also <laughs> right. represents the feds in civil matters. Okay. I mean it's not all just criminal. And so he is the the lawyer here in town, he is he is the top federal prosecutor, he is the one not only behind Um, the the ComEd bribery case that we've been talking about, um, there are street gang prosecutions, there are fraud investigations, um, and it, and again, civil matters that have to be dealt with here too. They're entangled in a case with the Chicago Cubs over uh, ADA access at Wrigley Field. The so, range, <laughs> right? So no, it's it's actually a quite a powerful position. I mean, we've seen the power of it uh, under John Lausch because of the results of the public corruption prosecutions. So it's a it's a very important office, and it's interesting to see how quickly nominations were sent to President Biden. Uh, I think it took much longer uh, last time around, but mm-hmm. that's probably a reflection that. Um, you know, we, we have two Democratic senators sending names to a Democratic White House. You know, there there is part of the process requires some kind of agreement between the White House and the home state senators. I see. Last time it was between President Donald Trump and Durbin and Dockworth. I see. Now so I think they're all time. on the same page. Yeah. yeah.
1: AD, back over to you. The, the streets outside the Illinois state capitol, they were filled with thousands of abortion opponents on Tuesday. What were they protesting exactly?
3: So this was the March for Life, which is typically held in Chicago but was in Springfield because abortion opponents are hoping to meet with lawmakers in part to lobby against against legislation focused on pregnancy centers. So there's a couple bills, SB 1909 and HB 2463, that would regulate how pregnancy crisis centers can talk to clients. So supporters of these bills, um, including Planned Parenthood, describe these as fake clinics that give inaccurate and untrustworthy information, uh, basically designed to shame or scare um, women away from receiving abortions mm-hmm. or um, creating a delay between uh, a woman seeking care and actually having that abortion. Um, so they may say negative things about abortion, birth control, condoms, or sex, or asserting false risks about abortion. This is according to proponents of the bills that want to like scale back exactly what these pr- crisis pregnancy centers can tell clients. Mm, okay. um, supporters say these are you know important resources that these centers offer. They do pregnancy tests, Um, ultrasound support programs for moms and dads. Um, But this is just Illinois' role in this national divide post Roe v. Wade. So we, Illinois, is considered an abortion haven at this point. The state legislature and the governor um, did a lot of stuff to basically increase access to abortions. They let state health insurance and Medicaid cover abortions, uh, protecting health care professionals who provide abortions and out-of-state travelers who come here to seek the procedure, which we've seen thousands of since Roe changed. Right. but we're, I think we are considered kind of a battleground for abortion opponents to kind of turn the tide back. Um, when I first reported on the impact of Roe this summer, anti-abortion activists basically said, Illinois needs to straighten up. We have to reverse um, what has made us an abortion haven, including the parental notification law and what I spoke about earlier in terms of increased access. Yeah.
1: Uh, let's stick with Springfield, but let's— Paris, let's jump inside the Capitol for a second. Mm -hmm. Uh, Attempted book bans continue to surge. Uh, This is after setting a record last year. What are Illinois lawmakers doing in response to this?
2: Well, just like A.D. said, this is kind of, again, illustrating the divide in this country. So the red states, it seems like they can't move fast enough to pass bills that either target or appear to target the trans community. And then, you know, Uh, target books that they find that are unseemly or inappropriate, you know, centering on sexuality or LGBTQ issues. So in Illinois, a blue state, deep blue state, the exact opposite. Lawmakers are trying to go after any local libraries, that that do ban books. And um, basically, it's been crafted by Secretary of State Alexi Genulius. fun fact. The Secretary of State is the chief librarian of the state, yeah. which is I almost, I was, I was two I mean, weeks nope. ago, years old when I learned right. that there was a, a position, many interesting <laughs> duties. So he's, you know, is basically saying that uh, they're going to withhold funding from libraries that uh, go against the American Library Association standard of uh, not bowing to political pressure to remove books. Now, if I could just talk about the politics uh, for a second, Alexi Julius is a guy who ran for U.S. Senate 12 years ago. This is a very ambitious politician. Um, This is a really good issue for him. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a good notch in in his belt to say, hey, I stopped book bans and I, I made sure that Illinois held the line uh, on book bans. Uh, but, and it's also interesting to see the Republican opposition to this. They are opposed to it, but they're very careful to say this isn't about... We don't want to ban books. We're just concerned that some of these more sexually explicit books shouldn't be within, you know, sight of little children, and we don't want to take away local control. That's our opposition. But again, supermajority Democrats, this mm-hmm. is going to fly through. There's no doubt about it. And,
1: and Paris, next time we go to our favorite fast food spot or we bring home leftovers, that could look a lot different, right?
2: Yeah, so another bill. This is a big win for environmentalists. They want to. Uh, they're going to phase out the use of uh, single-use plastics at all establishments starting in 2024. But then I kind of harken back to the. The plastic bag ban, Mm -hmm. um, you know, retailers found Mm -hmm. a very similar substance that wasn't plastic, but I don't think it was more environmentally friendly. And so they just went with that. Is there something like that here for utensils or containers? Or if you go to like Whole Foods, like there's the plastic utensils and then there's that the dispensary that that dispenses the more environmentally friendly, quote Mm -hmm. unquote,
3: compostable
2: stuff, compostable stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Is that really Um, Better for the environment. And again, environmentalists are saying like all this plastic winds up in in the Great Lakes. It pollutes the Great Lakes, pollutes everything. So we're trying to get rid of it. But is there a workaround? There always seems to be. Any idea when the Senate's going to look at this? I think it's going to go pretty quickly to the Senate. And this is another one that I would that I would assume... I, I am not supposed to assume, but again, supermajority Democrats, Democratic governor, this is a good issue for them, so this would probably pass.
1: Paris, we had one piece of legislation that was just plain nuts. You want to tell <laughs> our listeners what this womp, is about? Womp
2: <laughs> womp womp womp. You went so for it. A- apparently, I did. Uh, the lawmakers passed a bill to designate the official state nut of Illinois the black walnut. Yay! Uh, okay. I don't know. I've I've never. I don't. I don't know. Is if, it
3: edible? For humans, do humans eat a
2: well that that's a loaded know. term right now in Illinois, whether it's edible or not, but, um, do we have any it, fans <laughs> of the, any it, fans
3: of the black walnut in, at the table we're taking
1: call- it, one <laughs> we're of those calls. walnuts, <laughs> so folks, it has begun, and if you are a driver, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that three year construction project on the Kennedy. It's officially underway. I wonder if any of you have experienced. Slower
2: drive times, maybe this week. Can, can it get any slower on Kennedy? <laughs> and is there ever not construction?
3: I don't drive. I just pass it Good on the you. on the train. Sometimes and I'm like, "Thank God, that's not." <laughs> like, Hi, I, drivers.
0: I mean, that's the whole reason, reason I bypass the Kennedy on my way in here today. You know, I mean, yeah. Just uh, the 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 coverage has has been clear. Just stay <laughs> stay away <laughs> stay if stay you away can. From you know, for the next three years.
2: I've driven on it a couple times this week, and I'm with Paris. It's always slow. Yeah. It's like Sunday at like two in the afternoon, and it's like bumper to bumper. I'm like, where is everybody where is everyone going? going? Don't
1: you all work? <laughs> Relax, <laughs> folks. It's Sunday. <laughs> Uh, and for those who have the means to avoid the traffic on the Kennedy, a whole new way of getting to the airport could be on the horizon.
3: Yes. Uh, emphasis on like this is not a sure thing. OK. But United, <laughs> United and Archer um, are like whenever something really fast to the airport happens. I just think of that press conference between Rahm Emanuel and Elon Musk about mm-hmm. the, the right. super shuttle underground. Never happened. Anyway, United and Archer are planning air taxis between O'Hare and the West Loop. That air was, taxis, air, you say? Which sounds like so egalitarian, but no, they're helicopters.
1: Oh. Basically. Okay. They're, they're helicopters. So you can take a helicopter to O'Hare?
3: Presumably. Um, you basically land around, like, Pilsen in the Illinois Medical District. It would be a 10-minute ride to O'Hare. No idea where they would land at O'Hare <laughs> if there's a spot for them. Um, obviously, the same trip can take an hour or more during rush hour. Um, these are electrical aircraft. Um, this is also perhaps getting a trial basis between uh, the Manhattan heliport and Newark airport. Mm-hmm. Um, it still needs federal approval to fly, uh, but it sounds like it would cost somewhere between 140 and 160 one way.
1: Hence why we don't know whether this will happen.
3: Right. Um, but you, you've got to imagine there are some like big money clients who would rather, much rather take an electric helicopter than sit on... Ten minutes to
1: here that's, that's pretty compelling. yeah. Espe- especially
2: yeah. since they can't fly into Meg's Field anymore, right. so they, maybe mm. this is the next best option. But e- e- I'm still probably going to be taking the blue line. And yep. I-, I would imagine they want to get this up and running in three years. It's going to take a long time for the FAA to approve something like this if they do. I mean, this is kind of massive, like, you know, this kind of level of traffic, uh, air traffic, mm-hmm. you know, within a city and from an airport to, like— this is kind of a game change and I I got to imagine that they would they would have to do their due diligence to to
3: make sure approve something like that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And AD, I'm sorry, did you say anything about how much it would cost to take one of these rides?
3: Like between in other cities it's been projected at like 1 one forty, one fifty, one one way.
0: Oh wow. Uh, oh. Hmm. I'll take the blue line. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, 250. I will, 250, I will 250 folks to drive
1: and park at lot G. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. To Northwest Suburban Lake in the Hills. So this is where the owner of Uprising Bakery and Cafe announced that she's going to be closing down after receiving threats over hosting drag show events. Now, we had Ed Yonka from the Illinois ACLU on this week to discuss this. Let's listen.
2: In response to the protest and the vandalism by a proud boy at that facility, you know, Uh, Local officials tried to change the zoning of the business in order to block events. There was a place where we were able to help and the the business was able to move forward. And and Paris, you've interviewed the the bakery owner, Karina Sack, on on Chicago Tonight. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, she's basically saying now she can't survive as a business. Part of part of her revenue. I mean, part of her mission was to sort of be a safe space, she said, for LGBTQ. So she hosts drag shows, but also part of her revenue, too. She said, we can't really survive alone on being a bakery. So we had these Other events. And so that's why we're hurting. right Now, is it
1: for sure that she's going to close down? No,
2: I think she's making an appeal. I mean, to like raise money and to have people come patronize her store. But remember, this store was vandalized uh, last summer. Someone threw a brick through the wall. They Mm. had to close down and they had to cancel this drag show they were going to have. And this kind of became a flashpoint from some of these far right groups who have, you know, set their targets on the trans community and on drag shows. And, uh, you know, word spread online in some of these chat rooms and people went over there and they would like sit outside and like kind of intimidate people going in. I mean, it was this very strange. I think this group Awake Illinois, um, they weren't part of the people intimidating, but they were they were part of the folks kind of spreading information, saying, hey, you know, this is a bad store. They're they're doing all this trans stuff. Um, So, you know, a lot of provocateurs around the country. You've seen this. They've they've kind of hit on. This community and seized on it, and and they spread misinformation. And I I think it, I I think it's kind of their opportunist in in the sense that it raises their own profiles, but unfortunately has real life consequences here. Yeah. I mean it's hurt it's hurt people. It's made people really scared. And then in the in the case of this business, she's basically saying you know we can't really even stay open anymore.
1: We've got another LGBTQ related story, Paris. The the Blackhawks announced that they will not be wearing. Pride jerseys during yeah. their warmups this Sunday. Yeah,
2: this—I mean, this is a promotion on Pride Night, right? And, and you know, lots of sports franchises do promotions like this. But the, the reason given is because of all the Russian players in the league and on the Blackhawks, and you know, they don't want to put the Russian players in danger because there is uh, there are anti-gay laws in Russia to where like. If you're a Russian citizen, you're going to get in a lot of trouble if you even are seen publicly supporting uh, the LGBTQ community. So the Blackhawks say, you know, out of abundance of caution, we're not going to put them in that position. We'll do other kind of things uh, to celebrate uh, pride instead. Now, sometimes the news that we cover here on the Weekly News Recap, it actually
1: involves the media. We've got one of those this week, John. It involves the the city's chief labor negotiator and the Suntime city hall reporter. Fill us in on that,
0: right? Yeah, so um, Jim Franzek, the um, the labor negotiator, he um, joined my colleague Fran Spielman on her regular podcast uh, recently. I think it was last week, and. Um, Boy, it sounded like from listening to the podcast that Fran had been trying to get him on her show for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And um, he told her that, uh, you know, he always had hoped to stay in the background and just kind of do his job. But he finally uh, relented and joined her on the show. Uh, Turned out that was apparently the end of his very long career at City Hall, at least for now, um, because uh, shortly after he uh, participated in this podcast in which he... Uh, gave what sounded to me like a full-throated endorsement of Paul Vallis. Um, apparently, uh, Mayor Lightfoot decided while on vacation to fire uh, Mr. Franzak as a result of um, Ouch. W- what he said on the podcast. So I don't think we've really heard a full explanation for the the reason for the firing. I mean, obviously, he did speak very highly of Paul Vallis. And he's
3: he's don He and his wife have, have
0: donated <coughs> both donated to yes Malice yes as well. mm. that's right. There have been contributions. Right.
1: Does this sound ad in, in Paris like something Mayor Lightfoot would do?
2: From
0: what I heard, that
2: the mayor was really upset uh, because it is a member uh, of, you know, her administration. I mean, Frantic has been there for context here for like 40 40 years or something. So she was upset that that he would go out there and give this, as John said, like kind of full-throated endorsement of Paul Vallis and, uh, you know, giving the perception that perhaps— like that extends to her, you know, she doesn't want to be seen weighing in on this at all. So she was really upset at that. And it is amazing because Franczak, you think of all these crazy union disputes and labor disputes over the years and contract negotiations and the Chicago Teachers Union going out on strike and FOP, Franczak has been the guy for mm-hmm. the city negotiating those contracts year after year after year. And he's a very mild mannered, kind of pleasant guy. Mm. You know, you'd think he'd have some bruises from all these all these great contract battles. But, you know, I mean, He never made it personal when he was negotiating, though. He was always a very kind of uh, congenial guy. Mm -hmm. And um, I think even the teachers union and the FOP, as angry as they would get— they wouldn't direct their anger at him, you know, because yeah. he was just there trying to get a deal done. And, he, I mean, he's the guy, I mean, that, that knows all these labor contracts for this city. I would assume that – there I go assuming again. But <laughs> I, would think, I would think that Paul Vallis, should he win, you know, Francis would be a, a, a guy that you'd probably want to bring back.
0: And that's mm-hmm. why I was saying it's, his career might be over for now. I mean, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised, yeah, if Vallis wins, he comes back.
1: Well, I guess it's a reminder to us all just be careful what you say in interviews.
0: I mean, there's Funny. an hour
2: of all of us talking now. It's <laughs> an hour. Yeah.
1: Be careful after this one. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, this week marked the third anniversary of the state's COVID lockdown. Paris, we both had a chance to, to interview uh, Chicago Department of Public Health Commissioner Dr. Allison Arwoody. What stood out from your interview with her on well, that?
2: Well, I mean, basically, uh, Dr. Arwoody's okay. saying, and I wouldn't expect any less, but saying, you know, I don't regret anything that we did. You know, in the beginning, we needed to shut everything down. We didn't know enough about this virus. People were dying. Hospitals were overflowing. We needed the mask mandates. Yeah, You know, it, a year later, when we realized that we had more data on how it impacted kids, it did make more sense to lift those mandates for schools. So she said that. Uh, and then the other thing she said is, you know, um, are we really prepared for the next one? Uh, I mean, in the city level, yes. But at a national level, no, we're not if that. Yeah. I mean, if there's a more severe one that mm-hmm. that, ha- that has more severe repercussions, are we especially given the misinformation and the controversies that have gone around, are folks are folks going to really w- listen to the public health officials? Right. Uh, the, the next time around.
1: Well, I want you to take a minute here to, to plug a wonderful investigation that you've been working on, Paris, because you asked Dr. Arwady's thoughts mm-hmm. on on that as well. That's lead paint in, in Chicago. You stopped by Reset earlier yep. this week to talk about it, but for those who missed it, just give us the, the gist of the issue here.
2: Well, basically, we just profiled a, a family whose two-year-old boy was poisoned by lead paint in their apartment, and, and he's facing a whole lot of health issues right now, and it kind of led to this um, kind of glimpse at where we are with lead-based paint. And it's still a huge hazard, even though it's been outlawed for 45 years. Mm -hmm. According to Dr. Arwadi, the number one lead poisoning threat for children, uh, because um, there are hazards in nearly all of the homes built before 1978. And that's the majority of the housing stock in Chicago. So there's a lot of attention, rightly so, focused on lead-based water service lines. And We kind of know as a society, collectively, we have to replace those in the city. That could cost 10 to $15 billion. But But lead
1: paint is still there. Lead paint is chipping in these
2: older buildings, and that's going to cost billions of dollars to abate, too.
1: Yeah. Well, before I let you all go, I do usually like to ask what stories you're watching next week. I'm going to come to you first, John, (laughs) because— I feel like I can guess.
0: No secrets here. Right? What you're doing
1: next week?
0: <laughs> I'm probably going to be planted on those uh, hard wooden benches in Judge Lyndon Weber's courtroom, <laughs> Can you bring to... a pad?
3: Can you bring like a little cushion?
0: You can. Maybe we will. Maybe some. There have been cush- there have been cushions brought can in. You yes, bring a I appreciate cushion? that. <laughs> no, be hanging out and see what uh, evidence prosecutors bring next in the comment
1: trial. Lisa Lavis says, "Bring the judge black walnuts."
2: Ferris, <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Is Trump going to get arrested? I Uh, mean, you know, that's he 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 might have like thrown that out there last week as a decoy. Uh, But I think, John, I mean, John, you've covered federal courts for a long time. What do you make of the fact that, you know, this this potential D.A. indictment uh, hasn't come yet?
0: Yeah, we were talking about it. And, I you know, I have no special insights and I've been trying to keep up on the coverage while in the trial. But I have wondered if it I kind of wondered if there's a little bit of a, a kind of the feds telling uh, the local prosecutors stand down a little bit. Mm. I, you know, I don't cause, Cause of because of all these the, other cases. The, the, the records cases is, yeah. is yeah. building up.
1: Well, so. real quick, Ad, what are you watching? Runoffs, runoffs. Yeah.
3: I'm covering a bunch of
1: all the Democratic Of course, so of course.
3: Look out for those.
1: We've been talking to Paris Shutz of WTTW's Chicago Tonight, A.D. Quick of the Chicago Tribune, and John Seidel of the Chicago Sun Times. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. This episode of Reset was produced by Andrea Guffman and edited by Dan Tucker and Ethan Schwab. Catch every Chicago News recap by subscribing to our podcast. That's a wrap for this week. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Have a great weekend.